Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 20, Project Gemini Flight 8, Gemini 10. Make it a double. Before we start, I hope you all enjoyed my surprise supplemental earlier this week. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go back to your podcast feed and look for supplemental number 3, which briefly covers the remarkable Christmas Eve broadcast of Apollo 8 in 1968. I think you'll enjoy it. Last time, we talked about the somewhat troubled flight of Gemini 9A. This mission seemed to just be cursed. The primary crew was killed in a plane crash before the mission even began, the rendezvous target was destroyed when the launch vehicle failed, the first Titan II launch attempt was scrubbed, docking was made impossible due to a malfunctioning ascent shroud, and the EVA was a bust. The crew accomplished a lot, but especially when viewed alongside the aborted flight of Gemini 8, it was not a good run for Project Gemini. In fact, thanks to the problems getting Agena into orbit, and the problems Gemini experienced while there, a Gemini Mission Review Board was established to take a closer look at how the upcoming missions could be improved to avoid these issues. However, with the mission tempo increasing, Gemini 10 was scheduled to launch only about six weeks after Stafford and Cernan returned from their visit with the Angry Alligator, so their mission would be largely unimpacted by the board. Gemini 10 was commanded by one of our favorites, John Young. For more background on Young, check out episode 13, which covered his first flight, Gemini 3. This was his second of six space flights, and his last in Project Gemini. Joining Young was Michael Collins. Mike Collins was born on October 31st, 1930, in Rome. Yes, that Rome, the one in Italy. His father was a major general in the army, so he spent much of his childhood moving all around the world from base to base, hence the Rome connection. He attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in the same class as Ed White. He next followed in his father's footsteps by joining the military, but blazed his own path by joining the Air Force instead of the Army. After several years flying the F-86 Sabre, you guessed it, he became a test pilot. All these early astronauts are so predictable. He was inspired by the flight of John Glenn aboard Friendship 7 and applied to become an astronaut, eventually being selected as part of Astronaut Group 3. This is his first of two space flights. Like the previous two flights, Young and Collins had signed up for a complex mission that would be pushing the limits of NASA's capabilities. The first part of the plan was to once again launch an Agena, rendezvous and dock with it, this time using the traditional four-orbit profile rather than the three-orbit profile of Gemini A. Once docked, the crew would for the first time activate the propulsion system on the Agena while attached to it. This was no small thing. Rocket engines were, and still are, extremely temperamental, and there was a reasonable chance the Agena could explode just a few feet away from the crew. After all, the first Agena was lost when it did just that. Even if the engine didn't outright explode, there were lots of other nasty situations that could happen. What if they couldn't turn it off and ended up in a dangerously high orbit? What if it slewed to the side and put them in an uncontrollable spin while still thrusting? It was a calculated risk, to be sure. But using the Agena propulsion system was the only way to achieve the next part of the mission, rendezvousing with the inert Agena left over from Gemini 8. After Armstrong and Scott had accomplished the first-ever orbital docking, they departed in a hurry due to a problem with their attitude control system. 
The Gemini may have been out of control, but the Agena was just fine. After the crew safely returned to Earth, mission controllers commanded their Agena to raise its orbit so it could remain in space long enough to be visited by another crew. Over the intervening months, its orbit was lowered by the small amount of drag imparted by the thin atmosphere that's present even at these altitudes. But this lower orbit was still high enough to require a boost from Agena 10. Once the crew reached the defunct Agena 8, pilot Mike Collins would perform an EVA to retrieve an experiment from the spacecraft, as well as continue to evaluate EVA techniques. The mission was essentially the same as Gemini 8 and 9A, but without the rocket backpack tests and with the added wrinkles of a second rendezvous and a potentially risky engine burn. Could the crew of Gemini 10 succeed where the others had not? On July 18, 1966, the world was about to find out. Thanks to the specifics of their target orbits, the crew was able to sleep in until noon, with liftoff scheduled at 5.20pm. Much to the relief, and perhaps surprise at this point, of all involved, first the Atlas-carrying Agena, and then a hundred minutes later the Titan II-carrying Gemini 10, launched precisely on time. They must have forbidden Tom Stafford for being anywhere near the launch site. As usual, the first order of business was to begin the process of rendezvousing with the Agena target vehicle. As I mentioned before, this mission would be flying the somewhat more leisurely four-orbit approach profile, so there wasn't quite as much of a rush. Mike Collins attempted to evaluate some navigation equipment, but didn't have much luck. He first tried a specialized sextant, which would allow him to use the apparent position of stars over the horizon to determine his location. He soon realized that he had been referencing the air-glow layer of the atmosphere instead of the true horizon, messing up his measurements. Even when he realized his error, however, he found that he was unable to recognize the star patterns that he was seeing. He set the sextant aside and tried a different instrument, but found that it was even worse since it had such a narrow field of view that he couldn't see enough to use the device. Thankfully, Rendezvous went considerably more smoothly than the sextant evaluation, but perhaps not as smoothly as they would have liked. Thanks to a small, out-of-plane error in their orbit, Young had to use a lot more propellant than had been planned in order to complete the final closing in on the Agena. Despite the additional propellant usage, docking itself was accomplished without problems, and for only the second time, two spacecraft connected in orbit. No angry alligators in sight. After another full trip around the world, it was time to fire up the engine on the Agena in order to raise their orbit. At this point, I need to take a slight tangent. I had originally planned on simply mentioning that the crew activated the Agena engine and boosted themselves into a higher orbit and be done with it, but the story turned out to be more complicated than that. When I do research for this podcast, I read from a few different history books and take a quick look through the official press releases and post-mission reports from the 1960s. When I read about the Agena burn, I was surprised to find that some numbers didn't line up. Some sources were reporting a burn of around 13 or 14 seconds, and some others, including the official post-mission report, were reporting a burn of around 78 seconds. Now, a lesser podcast may have just picked one and let it be, but I couldn't do that to my dear listeners. Let's dig in. I hope you're ready for some math. We can calculate the total energy of the initial orbit and of the desired orbit to find out how big of a difference in velocity is required to move from one to the other. 
Converting units to metric, this burn would be raising the apogee, the highest point of the orbit, from about 300 kilometers to about 764 kilometers. By my math, that would require a change in velocity, or delta V, of 129 meters per second. Sure enough, the post-mission report states that the burn was 129 meters per second. Well, those wacky 1960s engineers listed it as 424 feet per second, but whatever. Okay, that's great, but it doesn't really help us in our quest to find out how long the burn took. You could add 1 meter per second for 129 seconds, or you could add 129 meters per second for 1 second, and you'd have the same result. Though I doubt the astronauts would appreciate that second one. Our next clue comes from multiple sources, including John Young himself on the mission transcript, who mentions that it was a 1G burn. In other words, the acceleration during the burn was the same as standing at sea level, 9.8 meters per second per second. If we take our 129 meters per second delta V and combine it with the 1G acceleration, we find it should have taken 13.1 seconds. This aligns perfectly with one of our sources, but is pretty far off from the 78 seconds we get from other sources, including the mission report. After digging around a bit more and asking some friendly folks on the internet, I learned that when an Agena performed a burn with its large primary engine, it first performed a burn with its smaller secondary propulsion system. This helps settle the fuel on one side of the vehicle, I believe so that the engine can easily take it in and there won't be a lot of sloshing. So the answer is that the total burn was 78 seconds, including the secondary propulsion system, but with a much shorter burn by the primary propulsion system at the end. It was the primary system that provided the 1G kick. Mystery solved! If you're wondering what it was like to ride a rocket effectively face down at 1G, here's what John Young had to say about it. Quote, At first, the sensation I got was that there was a pop. Then there was a big explosion and a clang. We were thrown forward in the seats. We had our shoulder harnesses fastened. Fire and sparks started coming out the back of that rascal. The light was something fierce, and the acceleration was pretty good. End quote. Sounds like fun. Half an orbit after their burn, the crew was at an altitude of 764 kilometers, about 475 miles. That's higher than any other human had ever been. And that's saying something for the 60s. At that altitude, the curvature of the Earth is far more pronounced, and it's easier to take in huge swaths of the landscape. But rather than marveling at the sights of the Earth down below, the astronauts just kept commenting on the fireworks show of the Agena burn. One interesting piece of data noted by the astronauts at this point was that there was far less radiation at this altitude than anticipated. There had been concern about high-altitude flights coming too close to the Van Allen radiation belts, which are a portion of Earth's magnetosphere that capture and accelerate charged particles from the sun. There is still more radiation than you'd like to live in permanently, but for a brief visit, say on the way to the moon, it was perfectly fine. After taking some time to try to get in some sleep in the tiny cabin, it was time to turn on the fireworks again and lower their orbit, putting them in position for the rendezvous with the Agena from Gemini 8. This time the burn lasted for 82 seconds and placed them in a circular orbit of about 390 kilometers in altitude. They were now in the correct orbit to intercept Agena 8, but it would take some time for them to arrive. 
As they drifted ever closer, they spent some time attending to a number of onboard experiments. One experiment they didn't need to focus on was the dreaded bioassay study. This was easily the most hated experiment by all the previous Gemini crews, and involved the careful collection and cataloging of various bodily fluids for analysis. After the lengthy missions of Gemini 5 and 7, it was decided that it was no longer necessary, much to Young and Collins' relief, I'm sure. They also spent time on the first stand-up EVA. A stand-up EVA is basically what it sounds like. The crew put their helmets and gloves back on and depressurized the cabin. Mike Collins opened his door and stood up in his seat, just poking his head and shoulders out into space. They did this during orbital night so Collins could take photos of faint astronomical targets, including ultraviolet photography of the Milky Way. Since a stand-up EVA does not involve crawling around outside the vehicle, Collins didn't experience any of the fatigue issues that had plagued Gene Cernan on the previous mission. However, they did encounter an issue with some lithium hydroxide from the filter system working its way into both the astronauts' suits. This caused their eyes to sting and tear up, prompting the men to end the EVA six minutes early. Next on the agenda was to undock from Agena 10 in anticipation of their arrival at Agena 8. That wasn't the last they saw of it, however, since not long after undocking, they radioed down that they had Agena 8 in sight, only to realize it was Agena 10 again, just three miles away. But to be fair, it's pretty tough to judge distances in space. Soon enough, though, they did arrive at Agena 8. The vehicle had been patiently waiting for another visit ever since the expedited and unexpected departure of Gemini 8 some four months earlier. The batteries had long since died, so there was no way to communicate with the spacecraft or use its radar. With no radar, this was the perfect practice for rendezvousing with a disabled vehicle, which might, but hopefully would not, come in handy with Apollo. Since there was no power, the astronauts would not be able to command the Agena to undock. So, rather than docking, Young simply maintained the Gemini's position nearby. Young would have to keep it pretty stable, because next up was a lengthy EVA by Collins that would include a journey over to the Agena. Since the rendezvous with Agena 10 had taken so much more fuel than expected, controllers on the ground wanted to take a look at how much fuel was required for station keeping with Agena 8 before giving the okay for the spacewalk. They eventually decided that the numbers looked good and gave the crew the go. Young responded, quote, Glad you said that because Mike's going outside right now. This EVA was complicated compared to Ed White's straightforward floatabout, but not quite as bad as Gene Cernan's exercise and exhaustion from Gemini 9A. Collins first retrieved an experiment package from the exterior of their capsule, and then moved to the equipment module in order to connect his Gemini 4-style zip gun to a nitrogen gas source. He held on as Young closed the distance between Gemini 10 and Agena 8, and then ventured off to the other spacecraft. The six-foot journey made him the first human to visit another spacecraft while in space. He tried to grab onto the docking cone, but found it too slippery to be reliably held, and actually slipped off entirely. He drifted about 25 feet away before using his zip gun to propel himself back. This time he opted for a cable bundle near the docking cone rather than the cone itself and was able to hold on. He snagged a micrometeoroid experiment from the side of the Agena, 
originally intended to be retrieved by David Scott, and worked his way back to the cockpit so Young could hang on to it. At this point, the original plan was to unbuckle a 30-foot extension to the tether and try the zip gun at a distance. But when the time came, the zip gun started acting up and the station-keeping fuel was running low, so they ended the EVA a little early. Collins struggled through a tangled tether, but worked his way back into the spacecraft. A while later, they opened the door again and tossed out the now-unnecessary tether. One quick note, if you're thinking of poking around on the internet in order to find some photos of Collins' EVA, don't bother. At some point while outside the spacecraft, his camera became disconnected and drifted away. Can't win them all, I guess. After the rendezvous, the docking, the other rendezvous, and the EVA, there wasn't much left to do other than come home. The crew performed another burn to lower their orbit, took some photos of the landscape, and got some rest in anticipation of their return home the next day. The usual sequence of events went off without a hitch. Equipment module jettison, retro rocket fire, retro module jettison, and then entry into the upper atmosphere. Young controlled the roll angle of the vehicle with advice from the computer and steered Gemini 10 to a nearly perfect splashdown less than four miles from the target point. The crew was fished out of the ocean and another Gemini mission was complete. But not quite yet. Once again, ground crews put the Agena through its paces. First, they raised its orbit even higher than before to take a look at the temperature variation. After that, they lowered it back into a nice circular orbit to perhaps be visited by a future Gemini mission. I see Gemini 10 as a much-needed confidence boost for the program. There were the usual hiccups, such as Young's fuel expenditure during the initial rendezvous and Colin's struggles during the EVA, but this was more in line with what was to be expected. No dramatic launch failures or spacewalk crises arose, and the mission was able to fulfill all of its objectives. It showed that there was still work to be done, especially when it came to managing activities outside the vehicle, but firmly put the program back on track. And that's good because it's been a while since Pete Conrad has had a flight, and he is raring to go. Not only that, but he has been heavily lobbying NASA management to allow him to use the Agena to boost Gemini 11 to record-breaking heights, or maybe even go around the moon. Will Conrad get his wish? You'll just have to find out in two weeks on the next episode. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.